What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. Okay, Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. And then flip a couple pages to 160. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. So last week, uh, or two weeks ago, you gave Miguel, um, not you, but collect, the collective we gave Miguel two verses, the shortest psalm, the shortest chapter in the Bible, and then for some reason gave me like the world's longest chapter, um, 176 verses. And um, 176 verses is like a torrent of verses. It's a lot of verses on everybody's favorite topic, the law of God, you know? So we're just going to go right after it this morning, looking at the intentionality that's here. And I'll point out a couple things, just overviewing what we're doing here. So as you look at this particular psalm, you may notice before verse 1, the word Aleph. You may notice before verse 9, the word Bet. Before 17, Gimel, and so on. Those are the, the words that spell the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And you actually have 22 stanzas of eight verses each in this particular psalm. And every phrase in that eight verses starts with that letter. Now, we lose all of that when we look at it in an English Bible. Um, but that's there because there's, there's a certain structure and redundancy that's built into this particular psalm for a teaching purpose. Like the Jews would sit with their families and say, this is how important the law of God is to us that we actually want you to remember it and be able to memorize chunks of this. And so it's written this particular way. Well, in 176 verses, which is what we're looking at here and not, not all this morning, the law of God is literally mentioned 176 times. Five verses don't say it, but then five other verses make up for it by saying it twice, okay? Um, because this is so big, what we're going to do with this particular psalm, I'm not going to try to go through it this morning and just kind of like exegete this, what the verses are saying. We're actually going to take this week, next week, and a third week to look at it a little bit more topically. This morning, I'm going to talk about God's word over us, like its authority in our lives. Next week, Miguel will be back looking at God's word in us, like how is it this innate, transformative, renewing force in our lives and then two weeks from now, we'll come back to this for a third, like God's word to us. What does God's word mean to us and why does it mean that? Okay, so I said I'm doing God's word over us this morning. And by that, I simply mean the psalm itself is going to say over and over and over again, 176 ways, God's word is the authoritative standard for our lives. It's the authoritative standard and this text shows us three things about that statement. We have a countercultural challenge here. We have a call to commitment here. 
And we have a character and a Christ that are also revealed here. So let's look at each of those three things. I say there's a countercultural challenge here. Just look at the first four verses where we let off, where we're told seven different ways you have to obey the law of God. And it's not a, a Tony Horton beach body coach, like do your best, forget the rest kind of obedience. He's literally like, keep my precepts diligently, which means obey me in every single detail to the greatest extent imaginable. He uses words like blamelessness, do no wrong. God's saying, I want your whole heart, not just a part of it. So I remember when I went off to, it actually wasn't Bible college, it was a Christian university. And that first day, even before class starts, you stand in these big long lines, you finally get up to the front where your little section of the alphabet is, and they hand you the student handbook. And I Googled this last week, and uh, this handbook, even though it's been trimmed significantly in the 20 some years I've been out of college, um, still is 75 pages long. Okay? And then you start going to classes and you, you meet with your advisor and each of these teachers is giving you a syllabus. And as, as I'm sitting there the first day of college, I'm looking at all these rules and guidelines and prohibitions and schedules and it's kind of overwhelming. But it's teacher's way, it's the faculty's way, it's the school's way of saying, here's what you have to do to be successful here. You keep this stuff, you stay on the track with these schedules, you'll do well. If you don't, if you just do your own thing, you will not do well. Well, in a similar sense, God is saying, do you wanna be successful in life? Because if you wanna be successful in life, then whoever you are and whatever specific circumstances you find yourself in, you need to submit yourself to the authority of my word. And to reinforce this point, notice 10 different words that God uses in this one Psalm for this authoritative standard. And you can kind of let your eyes just skim down through these verses. And he uses these 10 words. He calls it God's law, God's testimonies, God's ways, God's precepts, God's statutes, God's commandments, God's rules, God's judgments, God's word, and finally, God's promises. And I don't think the point here is try to, try to figure out what's the narrow distinction between each of those words. Like, why does he say testimonies here and he says law over here? If you were to Venn diagram this, you would see, you know, 80 or 90% of the meaning of these words overlaps. And he's just, he's using synonyms because this is a poem. And he's overwhelmingly saying one thing, that is God's commands, whether you call them commands, rules, laws, judgments, or whatever, these are the authoritative standard of right and wrong. Okay, and you understand why I call this countercultural. Our society, our culture is allergic to authority. We hate authority. We demand freedom. We demand autonomy. We, had, we demand independence and individuality. You know, we were out of town for the 4th of July, but I remember pulling up the news um, online, and I believe it was the Nine News helicopter had flown over the metro area on the 4th of July evening after sunset. And it did this time-lapse video of the metro area after dark. And there were thousands of different displays of fireworks going off all over, in spite of the fact that it was 100% illegal. Because we're Americans, and we're like, I don't care that it's illegal. It's Independence Day, so I'm going to buy some stuff and blow it up. And that's just what we do. And so when God comes in with an authoritative law and says, you can't do certain things, you, you must do other certain things, and there are consequences based on how you live, that's countercultural. 
We live with the spirit of Invictus where we're like, I am the master of my own fate, the captain of my own soul. I'll do what I want to do because I believe what I want to believe and no one can tell me these things for me. One of the, one of the dominant ideologies of our day right now is something called expressive individualism, which is not simply I am my own authority, but more specifically, it's this idea that my personal inner feelings are actually more authoritative than established science, let alone a book, a religious book that was written two or 3,000 years ago. So how does Psalm 119 sound to our culture when God just says, here's the law, here's the rules, you must keep them? It sounds irrelevant at best. It sounds offensive. Um, so let's, let's stop and pray for just a moment with this. God, we just want to pause and seek you right now. I pray that we can hang in there for just the next few minutes and, and begin to see your heart for us. Help us to learn to delight in your law the way the writer of this psalm did. Show us your steadfast love and give us life according to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. By the way, the Bible has this countercultural authority because it's God's word, because it's God's law. If these were simply generations old people saying this is our idea, we would not care today and this would not be authoritative over our lives. But the fact that over and over again it says this is God's word. And that's why now point two, there's a call to commitment here. And I want you to hang in there with me for a moment because I know some of you would say, I don't, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in Jesus, but you're here and you're honoring someone maybe who invited you and who loves you and thank you for being here. But you may say, I don't, I don't believe this, but just for the sake of understanding maybe, I want you to assume something just for a moment. Can you assume if there is a God and he has given us his word and his word actually tells us how to live a healthy, safe productive life, then what are we being called to do? I think at a minimum, we're being called to two things. Number one, if that's true, we would be called to learn it, to know it, to understand it, and we would be called to keep it or obey it. Okay, and let's, let's look at each of those for just a moment. First of all, we'd be called to learn it. You know, 11 times in this psalm, the writer asks God, teach me. I want you to teach me. Five times he says, give me understanding. And by the way, that's, I want understanding of your word, but I also want understanding through your word. Because I understand that as I look at and interpret everything else in life, I'm looking through a set of lenses that are interpretive of what is right and wrong, what is true and false, what is healthy and what is unhealthy. And he's saying, God, I want to understand your word and I want to understand everything else in light of your word. So question for us, are we committed to faithfully studying the word of God? Both, both on our own and with groups of people who are also trying to learn and grow and understand and wrestle with texts. Are we, are we into what does that word, what does that phrase actually mean? What was the history into which these words were first spoken? What's the context? So I'm not ripping something out of context and just making it say what I wanted to say, but I'm actually understanding the mind of God or the mind of the writer as this was revealed to us. And I say this because the reality is if 
the word of God is under us. If we are authoritative over the word of God, then we don't have to worry about what it means. It really doesn't matter. Who cares? Like we're not sitting there with Mark Twain, like, oh my word, what does this mean? I got to wrestle with that. He's just like, I don't understand that phrase. And we move on. But if the word of God is over us and has authority over our lives, then it's incredibly important. What does this word, what does this phrase, what does it mean? Am I understanding this in a way that's probably similar to the way countless generations that have gone before me and people that live in very different cultures than my own. So they're not just looking through a, you know, like a white Western individualistic grid to understand scripture. They're, they're looking at different ways and understanding what God means. We want to know God's word. That's the first commitment. Okay. The second commitment, the Hebrew uses two synonyms here 30 times. That's usually translated keep or observe in this particular psalm. And the idea is to pay attention to, to show reverence for, to guard with fidelity, and to obey. And we can sit here like sometimes the psalmist himself does, and we're like, but what if I don't agree with some of the rules? What if I don't like what some of this says? Well, you keep it anyway. What if I'm personally offended by some of the do's and don'ts? And what I want us to understand is that some of the things in this book, in the Word of God, some of the things that are most deeply offensive to a, you know, a cultural, social, political, progressive, or liberal are the very things that someone from a more traditional or conservative background would say, oh, I, I find those things very easy to obey. What I find hard is some of the things that you find easy, Right? Or we have rural sensibilities or urban sensibilities or suburban sensibilities. And all of these things are like, well, what an urban person finds easy about the Bible, maybe someone who loves like the farm life finds very difficult and vice versa. Someone from a majority culture may look at it a certain way where someone from a minority culture interprets it a little differently. And my point is, who's to say that you of all people in all places at all times have the right set of beliefs, you know what to cross out, and what to keep in, because as, as C.S. Lewis said, that kind of thinking is what he called uh, cultural or chronological snobbery. This idea, I, I just know better than everyone who's ever gone before me what in God's law I'm going to keep and what I'm not, what I'm going to obey and what really is no big deal. See, the reality is the Bible challenges, it upsets, it offends all of us at different points. And that's exactly what we would expect if it came from the mind of God and not simply a human being who's trying to massage a certain group and make them feel good about their set of beliefs while confronting another. We, we disagree with them. We would expect if it comes from God, it probably rubs us all wrong somewhere. And I think a part of what honors God with our lives is when we're simply like, God, I don't get this. In fact, I, I do get it and I disagree. I, I don't like this. This is not cool right now. Nevertheless, these are your words. This is your law and I'm committed to do your will. And now I'm speaking to those of you who would say, I want to live that way. I want to be able to read the Bible and understand accurately, like for our times, what it's actually saying to me and arrange my life under its authority. 
I don't want to be a rebel. I don't want to just pick and choose. I don't want to be a hypocrite. Okay, how can you do that? And this is the third point. There's a character and a Christ that we need to see here. I'll begin with an illustration here. So let's imagine a complete stranger walks up to you and says, one year from today, I'll return into your life. I'll come find you and I'll give you $100 million. Okay, how many of you would immediately say that would change the entire trajectory of my life? The fact that a complete stranger said that. Okay, or, or would, you, would, you, would you be like, okay, sweet, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to drop out of college or whatever it is that I'm doing right now. I'm going to start making lists of things. Like, I want to donate to these charities. I want to make these investments. I'm going to buy some stuff so I can just, you know, flex a little bit that, like, I have more money than you. You know, would you start doing that sort of thing or would you be like, eh, I don't know. I think most of us would be like, eh, it's probably not going to change anything because what are the odds? But let's say you got a name. And you Google that name and you found out, you know, I don't know, Jeff Bezos or something. And you found out like every day this person actually picks one person, makes this promise, and 365 days later, every single time, he actually writes them a check that's good for that amount. Would that change things? Probably. Okay. I'm asking us, how can we know, let alone obey a God that we can't even see with physical eyes. I think it's important that we understand his character as it's revealed in his word, as it's revealed in history, as it's ultimately revealed in Jesus. And if you were to study this chapter out, I'm going to try to make this simple for you, but, but write these things down and go back and look for them. Because I think if you were to study this entire chapter out, you would find five major categories of character qualities that are embedded in God's word. The first of them being that it's righteous. And the psalmist uses two words here that basically mean something that's upright, smooth, or level. And then the other word means like this is the right standard. This is the measuring stick, okay? If you crawl into the cockpit of an airplane, there's amongst many other dials and buttons and switches and levers, there's this one device called an attitude indicator. It's not just like, hey, the co-pilot's in a bad mood. An attitude indicator, um, the internal mechanism is a gyroscope, which is spinning rapidly at all times. And the idea of this device, which is also called an artificial horizon, is that no matter how the plane tips or climbs or banks around this device, the device always stays level relative to the ground. Now you can think how incredibly practical a device like that is if you're flying at night or if you're flying into a storm or for some other reason you get disoriented. Maybe you're just distracted even for a moment in the cockpit, but you look back and very often, and I've talked to pilots, professional pilots who say sometimes your sense of how you are relative to the ground or whether you're climbing, you may think I'm climbing and I'm banking to the right. And the reality is you're going down into the left and your body has fooled you, but it didn't fool that device. And you think about how incredibly useful it is to have that in front of you at all times and to trust that device as the measuring stick because you know it's always right. It's not gonna lead me into a mountain or into the ground or into a steep climb that I stall 
and cause another kind of problem. Well, he's saying the word of God is like that, that regardless of how you feel, regardless of how disoriented or frustrated you are about specific things going on in your life or just things going on in culture, you can look to the word of God and know this is accurate, this is right. So that's related to the second major quality, which is that it's tried and true. And again, he uses two words here that mean it's sure, it's reliable, it's dependable, it's faithful. But then I love this other word in in verse 140. He says it's well tried. And that's a word that means like it's been submitted to the fire and the fire has both refined it, but also tested it. And he's saying the the word of God has been tested and tested and tested and tested. People have poked at it from every possible angle and it holds true. It's proven itself. And the fact that something is true, reliable, but also that reliability, now we've gone back and tested over and over. Is it really reliable? Yes, it is. Is it really reliable? Is it like really, really reliable? Yes, it is. And probably some of you do this like I do, whether I'm buying something on Amazon or I'm trying to pick some new restaurant in a city that we haven't been to before, I look at other people's reviews, right? And if you see one that has 1,477 reviews and it's an aggregate like 4.8 out of five and people are taking photos of this amazing looking food, you're like, okay, that's probably somewhere I wanna get into. And then you see another review and it's the restaurant right next door and it has an aggregate rating of three across three people and one's a one, and one gave it a three, and one gave it a five, and the guy that gave it a one said, you know, it was okay, but nothing like Taco Bell. You know, then you're like, okay, which of these is tried and true? Like, which, which of these do I want to lean into? And this is the kind of word, the kind of description he's giving here that over generations of time, the law of God is not just given to us as like this blank, empty, like naked thing standing by its own, and God says, just trust me. But the reality is it's been submitted to trials and it's proven itself. It's reliable. The third characteristic here is, uh, again, two words that mean wonderful or wondrous. And I don't want you to miss the root of that word wonderful. It just literally means full of wonders. Like that's probably not how we often think of the law of God, that here's something that's amazing, that's that's incredible, that's awe-inspiring. If the, the more we begin to understand it, the more incredible the wisdom that's contained here becomes. Number four, we see this quality of eternality, the idea that other laws come and go. You know, they didn't work, so they're replaced by something better. Or this, this particular political party got voted out and new laws were made because those people had authority at that point in time or just public opinion changed, and so the laws changed around them. And the idea here is that in contrast to all of those, the Word of God endures forever. And then finally, the fifth, and I saved this one for last because it's probably the one we least associate with the law of God, and that is that the law of God is actually good and pleasant. And he uses a Hebrew word here that's the same one from Genesis where in the creation poem, remember where it's like God made this and God made this and God spoke this into existence and he looked at it and he said, it is good. And at the end of it, he says, this is very good. Well, that word good is actually a a massive word that implies a comprehensive goodness, like moral goodness, philosophical goodness, practical goodness, aesthetic goodness. Goodness. It means the quality of something is good. This is how the writer can say in verse 96, he says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. 
when he's saying, I've seen a limit to all perfection. You know, you ever been in the midst of an experience and you're like, I don't want this night to end. This is so amazing what's happening right now. So much joy, so much reconciliation or something. I don't want it to end, but it does. Or you buy your kids just the most amazing Christmas present that you, you toiled over all year long. Like, what's the right gift? And by Christmas afternoon, the batteries are dead and it's smashed all to pieces. And there's a limit to perfection, right? And what he's saying here, by contrast, when he says your commandment is exceedingly broad, he's saying it's incredibly wide and spacious. It actually leads me into an open and expansive place in my life, the picture of, of freedom. And it goes on and on and on. And we might object, but I, I thought the laws of God were constraining. I thought they limit our freedoms, and, and you're right. By definition, they do. So in what sense can you say the law of God is both constraining but also liberating? Well, a number of weeks ago, I gave you the illustration of guardrails on a windy mountain pass. And uh, I used the illustration of how because those are there, when we drive, we actually feel a greater freedom to drive safely knowing that those things are there. A couple weeks ago, coming back from family vacation, and we've got a, a, a 16-year-old new driver over here in the family. Um, she's doing great, and we got to this point coming back, and she says, well, I don't want to drive Berthed Pass, which is understandable if you've done Berthed Pass. She's like, I, I'll do the straight highways with the curves, but not Berthed Pass with all the switchbacks. I was like, cool, that makes sense. And then I just kind of ignored her, you know, and just, I don't know if I pretended to nap or something. And she ended up like having to, to go on Berthed Pass and did great. But as she's doing great, I'll tell you, as a father, like sitting in the passenger seat with no control over anything in this situation, I found those guardrails incredibly liberating for me and for her, right? Um, and, th and that's the way the law of God works in essence. But I, I want to go a step further because I want us to actually learn to, instead of bucking up against the constraints and the prohibitions of God, as if like, oh, you're just taking away all these freedoms and all these things, I want us to understand if God has put uh, constraints in your life through his law, and he has, they're there for at least one of these two reasons, often both. Understand that constraint is desirable. It's pleasant. It's good because it either protects you from harm and or it promotes something that's really healthy in your life. So I'm just learning to e-foil this summer. And for those of you who don't know what it is, I'll try to get a picture up here for you. E-foil is kind of like a small surfboard. Um, it has this huge battery pack in the surfboard itself. And uh, there's this long stem that comes down underwater and a propulsion, like a propeller on the back. And um, if you get good at this, you, you're like lying down on this board and you squeeze this little remote control in your hand and that propeller starts to go and you start to go through the water and you kind of get up on your knees and then you can jump up to like a surf position, okay? Whether you're like goofy or whatever, right? So, so you're riding like this and um, if you're good at this, like my wife is, um, you, you kind of control where your body weight is shifted and the whole board will come up out of the water and just that little fin at the bottom is in the water. And so you're, you're cruising at like this height above the water and you're looking down and you actually see fish in the water ahead of you like, ah, something's coming in there. But it's, it's, very, it's a very exhilarating feeling and you, know, you can go up to like 25 miles an hour on these things, okay? I wanna highlight one particular feature of the, uh, the e-foil 
And uh, do we have that zoom? There we go. Um, there, there's the propeller in the back, and you'll notice this black ring around the propeller. I want you to just kind of like imagine in your mind what that's for. Why, why, is, there a, why is there a guard on the propeller? Um, I'll make a long story short. Um, over our family reunion, that guard was broken off um, by someone in the family who rode it in too shallow and hit the bottom of the lake, and it cracked. Um, and we're like, oh, shoot, we shouldn't use this, but it's here, and it's fun. And uh, I was like, yeah, I'll take it out anyway. Like, what's, you know, what's the worst that could happen? And uh, so I took it back out again, and I was like, you guys, this is, actually, this is great, okay? So I know the guard is gone, but listen, it goes faster now because you don't have that extra drag in the water that's created by that stupid guard. And better yet, this, this lake where we're doing this, Shadow Mountain Lake up in Grand Lake, um, it's full of like kelp and seaweed. And as you're going through there, it gets caught on the propeller and it gets wrapped around the drive shaft and it can slow down so you don't, don't get any speed. So you have to keep flipping the board upside down and taking that seaweed off and then flipping it back upright. And I was like, without that guard on there, it's so much quicker and easier to get that seaweed off. So this is actually, this is a huge win that this is gone, okay? And uh, a couple weeks ago, I was back up e-foiling without this thing on. And I was like, got it up out of the water how you're supposed to. And then I was falling as I often do. And uh, they actually say in the instruction manual, it's like, make sure your last controlled motion is to jump away from the board. So that's what I'm doing. But I jumped and pushed the, the top side of the board. So the top of the board went away from me and the propeller was coming at me. Um, and I sensed that in the split second. So I turned my body as quick as I could. And I felt a big funk in the back of my thigh. And I was like, oh, that, that really hurt. I'm gonna have a bad bruise. And I reached back here like this and, uh, and I won't describe exactly what I felt, but my hand not only went inside my wetsuit, which had a big gash in it, it went inside my body, okay? So I was like, oh, this is bad. So I, I crawl back up on the board. I use the propulsion to like get back to the shore um, in a situation that wasn't remotely embarrassing. Like all the youth were showing up right that moment for their retreat. And, uh, and Chris Gillespie was standing there on the dock, our executive pastor. And he's like, looks like you need help getting out of the water. And um, so I end up in the ER um, with 12 stitches. I torn through the muscle and through the skin and all that. So, um, so you know, all that pain and recovery and $1,500 ER visit later, I was like, thank you so much, God, for a uh, sermon illustration. <laughs> um, <laughs> if God has put guards in your life, we may be like, it's faster, it's more fun, it's better. I can rationalize it all these different ways, why this is so much better that I removed this thing. But I'd love for us as followers of Jesus to say, God, my attitude toward your law is such that even if you're dragging me, kicking and screaming away from something that my heart desires more than your word, more than your law, you, you can enable me to say in the end, thank you, God, for loving me so much that you put this protection in my life. Thank you so much for actually promoting my good and seeking my health. We look back with me at the first two verses again, where the psalmist says, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. And see, this is, this is not our Western individualistic thinking. We're like miserable, maybe rigid, uptight, but blessed, which is a word that means happy. 
which is a word that means flourishing. Yeah. And that's my one big idea for you this morning as we start this part one of Psalm 119. If you leave here with nothing else, I want you to hear this truth. God's saying human flourishing is the result of arranging your life under the authority of God. God is not some big bully in the sky who's like, ha, 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 I love having control over you. He's, he's a loving father. And he's like, I want you to flourish. I want you to thrive. I want you to lead beautiful lives, loving one another, prioritizing what you ought to be prioritizing. And when we do that and arrange our lives under his care, under his law, we actually flourish. I want you to understand the reality that we will all arrange our lives under the authority of someone or something. And, and I mean this, whether you're a Christian or not, your choice is not between submitting to God or just running your own life. Your choice is I'll either submit to God or I'll submit to verses 133 and 134 say, the alternatives are you will be under God's dominion or you'll be ruled by other people or you'll be ruled by sin itself. I think Rebecca Pippert says this so well when she says, whatever controls us is our Lord or our authority. She says, the person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. And every single one of you, again, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we all have beliefs, we all have convictions, we all have standards of right and wrong. And even those who are like most tolerant in your own mind, you're like, I just think we should let people make their own choices and you know, live and let live. But there's stuff that bothers you so deeply, you're like, I know that's wrong, I know she's wrong, I know that's off. And my question is, with your set of beliefs and convictions and standards, who taught you to believe that? You ever think about that? Where did I get this stuff from, this, this package of standards in my life? Where did I get it from? Who taught me to believe that? And some of you would say, well, well no one, because I, you know, I just make up my own mind, um, which I know it may even feel that way to you, but the reality is we all have certain people, certain groups, certain tribes, certain political parties, ideologies, or maybe just culture as a whole that we all look to certain people and we say, well, she's an authority on this subject. So she can kind of tell me what to do in that area. He's an authority on this subject. Or we may just say, culture as a whole is just going this way. I don't want to end up on the wrong side of history. I don't want to be canceled. So you allow that to shape your beliefs and convictions rather than the word of God. And we just need to evaluate whatever our standard is and say, is this righteous? When I'm confused, when I'm turned upside down, when I feel like I'm plummeting or I feel like I'm doing fine, is this thing, does it correspond to reality and it's going to set me right or keep me right? Oftentimes, no. Is it true? Is it tried? Is it tested? Is it beautiful? Is it wonderful? Is it liberating? Does it promote human flourishing? So look with me at the very last verse of this Psalm. Okay, and then we'll be done. And remember how he started with blessing. Blessing, happy, flourishing are those who obey the law of God. So he's like, you want the good life? Then just obey God. Just obey him perfectly. 
and you come to the very last verse, Psalm, 170, Psalm 119, 176, and he says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Family, that's exactly how I feel when I read this psalm. I'm like, this is great, God. Like, I want, I want to walk in your ways. I believe, like, we'll come to this. Like, I believe your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And, and aspirationally, I genuinely think I want to do what's in here and avoid the stuff that you ask me to avoid. But if I'm honest, every time I turn around, I'm wandering off in my desires, in my thoughts, with emotions, with reactions, with, with deliberate choices that are not healthy for me. And they're not healthy for people in my orbit. So what hope is there for someone like me? If I restate this one big idea that human flourishing is the result of arranging our lives under the authority of God's word, but you and I struggle to do that, then is there no flourishing for us? Can we not be happy? Can we not be blessed? So I want to just conclude by reminding us there's an even greater hope than the character of God's written word, and that is the character of God's living word, that there's an actual Christ, a Messiah, a Savior who loves us. You see, even when these words were first written, God knew full well we would disobey his commandments. We would go our own way. We would do our own thing. We would pick and choose like, yeah, I'll do that. No, that's not cool. I'm not doing that. And that's the bad news, that when we disobey, there is a penalty, there's a consequence. But part of what I'm trying to do with you this morning is just to help you understand the the greater your understanding and appreciation is of God's law, the greater your understanding and appreciation of how far you've actually fallen short then lends itself to a greater understanding and appreciation of the magnitude of God's grace. See, if we're sitting here day after day and we're kind of shrinking God's law, like, eh, that's not a big deal. I'm not worried about that. And then you lie to yourself, maybe some of you who are trying to be religious, trying to, trying to do the right thing, but know, you, you, you know you're falling short. And so you put on a happy face and you go in public and you're like, yeah, I'm awesome. Marriage is great. Everything's going fine. I don't know what you're talking about. And what we're doing is we're boasting in ourselves very self-righteously, instead of saying, man, look, look at this law that a loving God gave me. And if I did it, I would flourish, but I failed to do it. And, and yet I'm gonna continue to confess my sin so that I may boast in Christ and the wideness and the breadth of his love and forgiveness and mercy over my life time and time and time again. And that's the good news for people who've broken God's law is that God sent his son into the world not just to pay the penalty that we deserve for breaking the law, but I think the other half of the gospel that we don't preach enough, so I'll I'll harp on it for just a moment, is that as we look at Psalm 119, there's only one human being in history who obeyed Psalm 119, and his name is Jesus. He fulfilled Psalm 119 for you and for me. And so when he goes to a cross and he pays for our sin and he rises from the dead, he says, the Father, I have, I have an obedient life to offer you. And those who come to me by faith, acknowledging that they've fallen short, they can still flourish by acknowledging that they fell short and by trusting in the one who didn't. And Christ extends to each of us this invitation. When you're tired of running, 
when you're tired of doing life on your own terms, you can say like the psalmist does here in the last verse, I have gone astray like a sheep. Seek your servant and he will. And he'll come after you in grace. He'll forgive you in grace. He'll clean you up in grace. He'll credit you with his own obedience by grace. He'll lead you into this wide place, this expansive place by grace. So may you and I respond to that grace, that steadfast love, by gladly turning from our sin, gladly celebrating a God who loves us, yes, even through his law. And we submit voluntarily not to earn anything. We submit because we're so grateful that we have a God who is this good and this great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for your commands. I pray that maybe even this morning, some of us do the diligence to look at some of the commands in your word that are offensive to us or stuff that we've just blown off. We got, we got people in here, because I'm, I'm one of them. Sometimes you read something and you're like, that's just dumb. Nobody believes that anymore. And may we dig into it, first and foremost, understanding the heart of a loving God over and over in this chapter, steadfast love is what's giving birth to this law. Because much like that guard on the propeller, you want us to go and you want us to go fast and you want us to, as it were, feel the wind in our hair. And even when we fall, you don't want it to be crushing to us. You don't want us ending up in the, the spiritual ER, which leads just to a host of other costly, painful things in our lives. So Lord, may you, may you use your word to shift our perspective on your word so that we may learn to first and foremost, or first know it, understand it, dig into it, and then also keep it, observe it, treasure it as the light as it is. And as we go to take communion, Lord, in just a minute, we wanna again just, just pause to say thank you, Jesus, that where all of us fell short of keeping your law, that, that moment by moment, day by day, for the 33 years of your earthly life, Jesus says, I have come to do your will. At every step, with every turn, with every disappointment, with every surprise, with every reaction, thank you, Jesus, for doing what we ourselves could not do. And so this morning, we're not looking to ourselves. We're not looking to celebrate ourselves. We're looking to you, and we're looking to make much of you. Thank you for your gift. Thank you that your gift includes a law. Help us to use it properly. Help us to use it wisely. Help us to use it in full sight of the gospel so that we don't diminish the role of your law nor make too much of it in the sense that we become little Pharisees running around evaluating everyone based on a standard that none of us can keep. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. 
Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.